This is the Seahawks Draft Show. I'm Brandon Schultz, joined by Rob Staten, SeahawksDraftBlog.com, as we wrap up the Seahawks 2019 NFL Draft. They come away with 10 picks overall after only having four picks about a week ago, and uh, they used it to bring in a pretty good haul, Rob. Yeah, they did. You know, they did a great job to to turn what was essentially four picks at the start of the week into, you know, a lot more. You, know, you ended up with, I think, 10 or 11 or something like that. So they did a great job there. Yes, they've lost Frank Clark in the process, which is a blow. And I'm sure we're going to get onto that a little bit later. But the thing that I really liked about this draft class is that there was a consistent theme throughout. You know, one of the things that I think we as fans and, and media get caught up in a little bit is is big names. And it's thinking, you know, when a team drafts a guy that you're perhaps not familiar with or you don't expect him to go in the round that he's gone in, your instant reaction is one that is quite negative. But really what you need to do is look at the whole draft class and see, is there a vision here? Is there an actual uh, a philosophy that's in place? Is, is it a consistent approach? And last year, the Seahawks said, we're having a reset. We're going to clear out some of the older players. They've become cynical. We've become old. We're, we're not all in anymore. We're going to make some changes. We're going to recommit to the running game. We're going to recommit to, to Pete Carroll's vision. And they started to do that. And, you know, they brought in some players and you could see that there was a change. There was a turn. And last year they had a decent season. This has taken it to a whole new level now. They've gone for speed and toughness and guys that love football. And they've got players who can contribute immediately on special teams, even if they're not starting. I think this is a just the ideal draft for the next stage of this reset. This is them reaffirming their commitment to Pete Carroll's vision. And I think you've got to give it two big thumbs up. Well, there's definitely some themes here, Rob, and I want to get into those because you look at the first couple picks and the guys are thumpers, physical guys. You know, they don't jump out of the gym necessarily or have the the big numbers when it comes to uh, the the combine stats. But uh, outside of those two picks, that's when they go to some of these other players that really are those those high profile type athletes. And so there was quite a different bit of mix uh, on both sides, you know, just guys who love football and and also the guys that kind of have that, uh, you know, high level of, of athleticism that they've looked for in the past. Absolutely. You know, le- these are the words that sort of spring to mind looking at this draft class, leadership, toughness, physical ideals, commitment to identity, special teams. You know, just to run through some quotes here, I've got a load of quotes, uh, Brandon, which I can read some just to, uh, quickly, sort of one sentence on each player. Uh, these are quotes taken from either anonymous scouts, courtesy of Bob McGinn's website, or from Lance Zierlein's, um scouts on the NFL.com profiles that he provides. A quick sentence on each player. LJ Collier. Collier's toughness, size, and strength are traits seen typically from players who develop into quality starting ends. Marquise Blair. He got three targeting penalties on purpose. If he wasn't crazy, I'd take him in the second round. That is the best anonymous scouting quote ever, by the way. (laughs) DK Metcalf, DK is a freak. You line him up at the X and he's taking the lid off coverage. That's what he's doing. Smart kid, loves football. Cody Barton, man that expletive is a football player. He's all over the field. A really strong, aggressive guy at the point of attack and a really consistent finisher. Gary Jennings. Jennings is one of the fastest players at the Senior Bowl, according to Zebra Technology Tracking, and his 4.42 combine time and huge numbers in explosive testing are sure to push him up draft boards. Phil Haynes, powerful guard prospect with well-built frame that can handle more mass. Haynes was a four-year starter and is known for durability and leadership. He was also the most explosive offensive lineman in the class. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that later. Hugo Amadi, 
He's strong and physical in press and is a willing run supporter, which gives him a shot at as a sub-package down safety with punt return talent. Ben Burkiven, he's an expletive good player, guys all over the field, fun to watch, tough and instinctive, plays with his hair on fire, good athlete, good in space, all-out effort, most productive player that I saw, high motor, finds the ball, runs well. Travis Homer, a little undersized, but runs big, and he already possesses NFL-level toughness in pass protection. And then finally, Demarcus Christmas, upper body power and twitch to pop and shed single blocks, has some ability to batter the pocket with his rush. Those guys all sound the same. Love football. They're team captains. They're leaders. They've got athleticism. And they're going to help this team, again, further emphasize exactly what their identity is. One of the things that jumps out to me, though, and maybe a criticism of a lot of Seahawks fans is we talked about just how deep this draft was in terms of defensive line. And yet... The first pick of the draft, they, they do go defensive line, you know, kind of at least getting somebody to come in behind Frank Clark now that Frank Clark's gone on to the Chiefs, but then not another member of the defensive line until that number 209 pick with DeMarcus Christmas. I think it's a legitimate complaint about this draft class and Seahawks fans will be right to raise that point. I think there are two things that I would say to this. Firstly, it is pretty surprising that the Seahawks only drafted two defensive linemen and one was a sixth-round flyer. And when you look at how many options they there were, and given that the extreme needs that the Seahawks had on the defensive line, it is a surprise. They lost Frank Clark. They lost Shamar Steven. They're not going to re-sign Dion Jordan. And already the run defense and the pass rush wasn't good enough in 2018. They needed to improve both areas. And the only players that they've added this offseason are LJ Collier and Demarcus Christmas in this draft and Cassius March and Nate Orchard. They need to do more. They've, they've left themselves open here. There's still a lot to do in terms of run defense, which isn't a particular strength of Marcus Christmas. It is for LJ Collier. Uh, I don't think Marsh and Orchard are going to offer much in that regard. They've got to find another defensive tackle. They've got to find at least a pass rusher. And while even, you know, even the biggest optimist for Rasheem Green and for Jacob Martin will say that that is inadequate. The one thing that I would say, though, is that this was a strange draft because while it was very deep on the defensive line, the areas where the Seahawks picked was not... You couldn't really identify an ideal defensive lineman at any spot. Guys were coming off the board. in So you saw a cluster of defensive linemen go very early before the Seahawks picked at 21. So if Rashawn Gary's there at 21, they may well take him, but he's not. He's gone at 12. So they trade down. Once they've traded down... You see people like Montez Sweat, for example, and Jerry Tillery have gone off the board. So again, not an ideal place, but they go for LJ Collier. Then you sort of look and as you're working through the rounds, there were better players at different positions available. I mean, is anybody really going to quibble that they moved up to take DK Metcalf at pick 64? You know, I didn't think he was a a top 20 pick, but at 64, you take a flyer on that guy (laughs) and find out whether he is Josh Gordon or whether he is David Boston. You know, they needed to bring in another receiver in round four because of the Doug Baldwin situation. Gary Jennings is the perfect Seahawks receiver. And Phil Haynes, I think, is a much better pick in round four than the defensive linemen who were available there, and so on and so forth. So it, it was it was difficult for the Seahawks. I'm not making excuses. It's just that there weren't very obvious options when the Seahawks were picking in the ranges that they were. Defensive linemen had either just come off the board um, or they had to go in different directions because certain players were available. And it, it has left them with an issue now that they are going to have to solve now that the draft has concluded. Well, it either lives, leaves them with an issue that they expected or didn't expect. And 
I it's tough to tell just by the way that it did fall if they expected the draft to go the way that it did or if they have in mind, you know, they they did bring in guys on the interior yeah. defensive line. They brought in Nick Perry uh, leading up to the draft. So whether that was a contingency, if the draft did go a, a different way than they expected or part of the plan, it, it's it's never easy to, to say. Well, I, I think they knew this was going to happen. I think that, you know, maybe not to the extent that it did, but it's, it can't be a coincidence that days before the draft, they entertained Al Woods, a defensive tackle who was playing in Indianapolis most recently. Alan Bailey, who was the longtime Kansas City uh, defensive end. And Corey Legit, who had been cut by the Los Angeles Chargers. Right. It, it can't be a coincidence that they brought those three players in right before the draft. I think they anticipated that there were going to be some issues here. I wouldn't be surprised if Alan Bailey, Corey Legit, and Al Woods all get signed up now just to sort of provide some depth and competition on that defensive line. Um, and it wouldn't be a surprise if Nick Perry comes in as well. And then they've got decisions to make. You know, Ziggy Ansah's still out there. I know that every, every Seahawks fan is going to be talking. You're going to hear Ziggy Ansah's name mentioned more than these draft picks <laughs> after this draft because everyone's going to say they didn't address that well enough. They need to go and get Ziggy Ansah because he's a big name. But the thing that you have to remember about Ziggy Ansah is that he's recovering from shoulder surgery right. right now. You know, how reliable is he going to be? This is a guy that has been permanently banged up ever since he came into the NFL. People wonder about him in, in terms of his effort. You know, he's so hot and cold. It'd be a game record one week. And then the following week, you don't even notice he's on the field. And he is a player that is a free agent for a reason. You know, none of the other 31 teams have decided we're going to take a chance on him with a shoulder injury. So I'm not sure that he's he's the kind of guy that you want bringing into a young, hungry team that have just spent practically their entire draft bringing in intense, fast, determined, passionate football players because he kind of works against that. But he is a very talented pass rusher. So that is someone they have to consider. The other thing that I would I'd sort of throw out there, Brandon, that's maybe something we need to think about is they didn't spend any of their 12, 20, 20 picks in moving up or about in, in trying to manipulate this draft. They were able to move up a couple of times without spending any 20, 20 picks. So do they now go out to the rest of the league and say, what veterans are available? Is there a a pick trade that you could make for next year to come and acquire some veteran defensive linemen. And that doesn't have to be a big splash. I mean, it could be that they spend later round picks just to get guys in to get contracts that they're going to, if a player's going to get cut anyway, maybe you bring him in for a six or something like that. I don't know. But there is one name that stands out. I'm not predicting this. I'm not saying it's lightly. I'm not even encouraging it. All I'm saying is that there is one player on the franchise tag right now who doesn't seem like he's going to get a new deal at Houston. It sounds like it's exactly the same situation as Frank Clark in the Seahawks, where his team are not really wanting to pay him Demarcus Lawrence money, and yet he's on the franchise tag and the time's running out. Jadavian Clowney is a player that reportedly, there's been a few whispers that the Seahawks inquired about a few years ago about getting him when he had a disappointing start in Houston. Do they go and make an offer for Jadavian Clowney now? You may ask, why would they pay him and not Frank Clark? Who knows? They may have, a, uh, they've, they've been with Frank for four years. They may have made a decision that his maturity or whatever, maybe they didn't want to pay him. I don't know. I'm just speculating on that. I have no idea. They may decide, actually, Jadavian Clowney is a former number one overall pick. They do want to pay and that he is an even bigger athlete than Frank was. Just saying that. So is that an option? Maybe it will be. It's an interesting thought for sure. I did pull up the Houston Texans draft class just to see if there might be any hint that they might be willing to move on from Clowney. And they did not take a defensive end until pick number 161 in the fifth round uh, when they got Charles Amenahu. The thing is, though, is that, I mean, I'm looking now, just Google it. Um, you know, this was a day ago, Texans putting out trade feelers on Genevieve Clowney. 
Um, this was from the big lead two days ago. Jadavian Clowney put on the trade block by the Houston Texans. Now, whether that was before the draft and they were hoping to get, you know, a Frank Clark style haul, mm-hmm. um, it was actually reported after the Frank Clark trade had been completed that, that the Texans tried to get in on that and and offered Clowney to the to the Chiefs. And the Chiefs said, no, we, we want to go with Frank Clark. That's the guy that we're going to go for here. They, they were trying to move him um, to the Chiefs. So we'll see. I mean, we have to remember the Texans have got, I think they've still got Whitney Merciless, haven't they? They've still got J.J. Watt. Um, they may feel somewhat comfortable with their pass rush options. And the other thing is, is if they have no intention of signing Clowney to a long-term deal, would they rather just get something now and move on and make a cap saving rather than sort of going through this dance? I think they've got an issue here because they're trying to tag him as a linebacker and he wants to be paid like a defensive end. There's some uh, financial difference there. And I think that's, it's a bit like Jimmy Graham when he's with the Saints. So I think that's causing a bit of friction too. Listen, I, I don't know if this is likely or not. I'm just saying that if, if they're desperate and determined to move on and the Seahawks could, they've got two 2020 second round picks. You know, if, if they're that desperate to move on, would they take a second round? Would they take two of the second rounds to see how can keep their first? I don't know. Is there something that they could do here to get Clowney into Seattle so they've got that game-wrecking defensive end who can be a bookend for LJ Collier and enable them to feel confident about their pass rush? Or are they just going to go with the younger guys, bring in a Nick Perry or somebody like that and hope for the best in 2019? But if the Seahawks want to take a step forward, it's hard to see, you know, that the pass rush it was not good enough last year if they take away Frank Clark and haven't really replaced him, it's hard to see. It's, it's going to make life harder for them to make that step forward is what I'm basically saying. It's definitely going to be something that Seahawks fans are going to be watching moving forward in the offseason. But let's get to the, the players that the Seahawks have taken in the draft. You know, you gave your one sentence uh, recaps from from the different scouts. But I want to hear from you, Rob. Uh, we talked about Collier after the first round, but Marquise Blair the only time this is just the second time that Pete Carroll has taken a defensive back in the first two rounds. And the other one was Earl Thomas. What do you think about Marquise Blair? <laughs> I really like Marquise Blair. You know, he was a guy that I've consistently projected in round two and, and in my mocks that I've done where they've been second rounds, I've always had Marquise Blair as part of that. Um, just a really fun player to watch. You know, he, he just flies around absolute hammer. He's the biggest hitter in this draft. Not surprised at all that the Seahawks really sort of coveted him and have taken him, like you say, he's only the second defensive back they've taken in the first two rounds because they lost a bit of the fear factor with Cam, with losing Cam. Mm-hmm. You know, receivers could not run across the middle with Cam Chance in the back of their minds and, and it impacted opponents. Now, Marquise Blair's a different physical, he, he ain't going to be 230 pounds. He never is. But, he could be 205, 210. He could get up to that weight. He's a 4 4 runner, so he's faster than camp. And he's going to smack you over the middle. If you run across him right, he's going to hit you. He, his, his great thing is read and react. So, one of the things the Seahawks have struggled a little bit when they play the Rams is the Rams just kind of march up and down the field on them because they've got no answer with their quite orthodox defense to a lot of these misdirections that they do in these sweeps and these reverses and, and the threat of those plays enables the Rams to be able to be able to run the ball. It gives Jared Goff a lot of time in the pocket. They'd never pressure Jared Goff when they play the Rams. And I think one of the things that Marquis Blair is going to do is that his ability to put him in space, fly to the ball carrier on those misdirections and enable the Seahawks to be able to just sort of focus inside on shutting down the run, running the court, because we're comf- we're not having to spread everything out because we've got players on the perimeter that we feel can handle these things. And I think that's what we're going to see with Cody Barton and Ben Burkiven as well. You know, they're two players who were also very good working in space like that, reading and reacting. So I thought the Seahawks might 
draft a safety early to do some of those things to try and combat the Rams. It looks as if they have done that and they've also drafted two linebackers who, for those two games next year against the Rams, they can mix things up, give them different looks, use different formations, be a bit creative there to handle some of the stuff that the Rams are doing. So I like this Blair pick, big, physical, fast safety who is going to leave a mark next season the biggest hitter in this draft class and a good pick in round two and good value. People will say they took him too early. They didn't. This guy was a second round pick. Well, you brought up Cody Barton, the linebacker from Utah. And to me, that was maybe, you know, apart from moving up to get DK Metcalf, may have been the biggest surprise for me that that with the linebacking core that they have, you know, KJ Wright, Bobby Wagner, and, and potentially Michael Kendricks, depending on his situation, you know, it felt like they were set at linebacker. And it doesn't mean that, you know, a few years down the road, they're going to want to start growing the, the next generation of linebackers. But the idea of going linebacker with Cody Barton in round three versus I, that to me seemed like the spot to go with more defensive line depth. I've got a theory on this though, and, and why they took not only uh, Cody Barton, but also Ben Kiven. And if people remember after the 2016 season, Pete Carroll came out in his end of season press conference and said, we need some linebackers. We need some youth at the position. That's a priority for us. Bobby Wagner played like 99% of the defensive snaps. KJ Wright played something like 96, 97% of the defensive snaps. It was too much pressure on Bobby and KJ. And that made me think, okay, so we're going to have to look at the, the linebacker class because they're going to draft some linebackers because Pete Carroll said they need some youth at the position. And then the 2017 draft comes around and they didn't touch the linebackers. They didn't go anywhere near them. And then a year later, the only linebacker they took was... Shaquem Griffin, and anybody who's watched Shaquem Griffin, he's not an orthodox linebacker who never was at UCF. He was more of a, a nickel linebacker who blitzed. You know, he, they sent him after the quarterback. He had a lot of TFLs, a lot of sacks. He wasn't a, a traditional linebacker. So you could even make a case that he was more of a pass rusher than a linebacker. So they're not taking any proper linebackers in the last two years. Why was that? Even though Carroll said they needed youth at the position, it's because college football has not been putting Seahawks linebackers into the NFL. What do I mean by that? A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece and I've linked to it on the blog a few times over the last couple of days. We identified that the short shuttle is a key test for the Seahawks. They've drafted a lot of linebackers who, even if they're not the quickest 40, if they've got great short shuttles, they will consider them. They appreciate that agility and that ability to move in space. Cody Barton ran a 403 short shuttle, which was the fastest among linebackers at this combine. It's also the second fastest among linebackers in the last five years. So we're talking about extremely rare quickness and agility here from Cody Barton on top of the fact that he is a team leader, incredibly physical. He's a passionate football player who's going to have a major special teams impact. He, he's, he's got that agility that they've been looking for. And I think when they got to round three and they see this guy sitting there, they think we've been looking for this kind of linebacker for two years and here he is. Are we going to pass on him? No, we're going to take him. Even though we've drafted, uh, sorry, we've re-signed Michael Kendricks even though we've re-signed um, KJ Wright, they've got to think beyond that. Kendrick's on a one-year deal. His court case still hasn't even been heard. KJ Wright may only be, it may be one more year from KJ, and then he maybe has to move on. Bobby Wagner's still a free agent. He, he's not signing his deal. If Bobby Wagner wants $20 million a year, they have a decision to make next year. So, you know, I'm just saying that they're having to prepare a little bit here because there isn't a certain future at linebacker. None of their guys could be with them that are currently here could be here beyond this season. This could be the last year for a lot of them. Hopefully not, but it could be. So I think that they did have to make some um, contingency plans there. But I, I will say that I think it's the it's the simple fact that Barton's physical profile has is the kind they've been looking for for two years and three drafts, and they haven't had it until today. 
and they had to, they, I, I believe they felt like they had to come out of this draft with Cody Barton. And a quick point on Ben Burkiven, he also ran a, an excellent short shuttle, a 4.09. It was the third fastest among linebackers at the combine, and it's the eighth fastest time in the last five years, short shuttle in the combine. So Ben Burkiven, in exactly the same situation, they've been looking for guys like this for, th- for three drafts now, and they took both of them because I think they believe these types are not coming into the league. It's time to go and get our guys. Five linebackers came off the board ahead of the Seahawks pick of Cody Barton, and they end up with two out of the next four. Uh, so two linebackers out of the top 10 linebackers taken off the board going to Seattle. Yeah, and look, they've got a lot of depth there now, but as I mentioned, they've got a few guys out of contract in a year, and KJ's got two years, but it, it may be a one-year deal glorified as a two-year deal. So the other thing that I think is big here, as I mentioned, when they're playing the Rams, a lot of misdirection, a lot of reverses, a lot of running backs getting out into space. I think when they play the Rams, they're going to come up with a plan that's similar to the New England Patriots and what they did in the Super Bowl and your your Bartons and your and your Bembo Kirvins um, and people like Marquis Blair are going to be absolutely integral to handling or trying to handle the Rams or do a better job of limiting the Rams. The Rams got three points against New England Patriots, struggled to get the ball up and down the field. Against the Seahawks, they're getting 30 points a game. They had to do something about that. And I think these guys will, will, will help them in that regard. And I think special teams is a big focus here within this draft class. Barton, BBK are going to be part of that. Marquis Blair is going to be part of that. Hugo Amadi is a great punt returner. He could be a, in contention to take that role from Tyler Lockett next season. He scored a, on a punt return last year. Travis Homer, Charles Davis on the NFL Network, as soon as the uh, Seahawks picked Travis Homer, he highlighted that he's a big special teams player. So I think the Seahawks have seen their kick coverage been poor for a few years now. I think they've said, with this draft, we're going to get some great special teamers as well. Special teams, always an important component where the Seahawks look to address. So good to know they have some guys who can compete there. One thing they don't seem to know, though, Rob, is the status of Doug Baldwin going into the 2019 season. Let's take a break and come back to talk about that and how that could have impacted their selections in this first half of the 2019 draft. One of the things you mentioned at the top of the show, the fact that now they have to consider potentially replacing Doug Baldwin, the news coming out in that day two of the draft that Doug Baldwin potentially may have played his final down with the Seahawks has a lot to consider with injury issues and recovery and kind of a a big question of whether or not he could come back next year. Yeah, and it's one of those situations, sadly, where it's it's trending a certain way, isn't it, Brandon? All of the the noise and the talk at the moment is that it looks as if he's going to retire. Now, I'm sure he will leave it to the last possible moment uh, to make that call on, as to where he will not take a decision lightly and I'm sure he won't want to retire and then regret it instantly and then come back and, and have to fit in. So the Seahawks will no doubt give him the time it's going to take. It will be a huge blow if they lose Doug Baldwin. Doug Baldwin has been a consistent force for the Seahawks for a number of years. Third downs, touchdowns, red zone, the ability to get open, um, to make spectacular plays. Even when he's been injured, he still had this ability to make plays. You know, one of my favorite plays that, of Doug Baldwin is is the, champ- the NFC Championship game against Green Bay. You don't have that big touchdown to Jermaine Curse if on the previous third down play, Doug Baldwin doesn't get so open that Russell Wills can just float that pass for what was it, about 20, 30 yards. Right. Remember it to the sideline? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he got a great release sort of dipped in towards the, the sideline makes the catch big conversion on third down 
Russell Wilson quickly gets him up to the line. Little audible to get the play downfield for Kirst. They win the game, they go to the Super Bowl. And that third down conversion was a, bug, a Doug Baldwin special. And if they lose him, they're going to lose plays like that. So I'm worried about it. I hope that he can play at least another year and give the Seahawks a chance to get into the 2020 draft, which is going to be the year of the receiver. That's what everybody expects. That's where all the big names are next year. Um, hopefully he can play one more year, but they've drafted two receivers. It seems like this is heading in one way. I'm worried about it too. I, I don't, I, you know, it's been something that's just been discussed, you know, here and there as, as being potential, but you know, when they go out and, and draft two different receivers early on in the draft with their first uh, five picks, you know, it's it, like you said, it feels like it's trending in that way for Seattle, but it does kind of highlight a guy that we've been talking about, Rob. I feel like DK Metcalf is a player that we've talked about quite a bit. And the, when we've talked about him, it's been around that idea of him being around toward the middle of, of the first round. And you've, you've mentioned a lot of the shortcomings, a lot of the, the injury, uh, his injury history. Uh, th- that's been a question surrounding him. So then when you see the Seahawks make a trade with the New England Patriots to go up and get DK Metcalf at the number 64 overall pick, the very last pick in round two, I have to think that in terms of value, that uh, you, along with a lot of other Seahawks fans, were pretty excited to to see him fall to that spot and then Seattle to go up and get him. It's an exciting pick, isn't it? Because he's got incredible size and speed. You know, to run a 4-3 three, three at 228 pounds is, is unique. You could definitely, you know, make any comparison you want. If you want to say that he looks like Calvin Johnson, you can say that. I mean, he's, he's got that kind of frame. He's got that kind of potential. He could be Josh Gordon, but he could also be David Boston. So. This is the thing. I think at pick 64, it, it doesn't matter. You know, if he flames out and, and two years is out of the league, I, I don't think anybody could point the finger at Pete Carroll and John Schneider and say, why did you draft that guy? Right. You know, you, you've, you've got to just live with the consequences. He was the most boom or bust player in this entire draft. It's one of the reasons why he's dropped to 64 and why other receivers, you know, guys like Debo Samuel, their ceiling is much lower. Their floor is much higher. You know, teams like San Francisco clearly weren't willing to make that gamble on DK Metcalf. They wanted to get the guy that just gets open and has some special teams value. And he's ended up going to 64, probably because a bit of the injury, probably a bit because he doesn't only runs really one route downfield. It's a go route and that's it. Um, and the Seahawks have got him here and there's no pressure at 64 to to make him into an 1,000-yard receiver in year one. They can take the time with him. They can try and develop him. And in the meantime... Next year, get him running downfield. Get him taking the top off an offense. That's what the Seahawks want to do. They want to get the ball downfield. They want to run it and run it, play action, get it downfield. That is what he's good at. I am so... You do not see big receivers sprint downfield like this guy can and create separation on the second level and downfield. That is... If he can learn to use his size to his advantage and box out, he could be a great red zone threat. He's going to be a great downfield threat. You know, I want to see an end to the concentration drops on the short level. I want to see him be a bit more dedicated to finding ways to win over the middle and on third downs. But for the as a rookie, he's going to run straight downfield and make plays. Just a quick final point on the Doug Baldwin situation, if I can, Brandon, as well. The one thing I'm a little bit surprised in this draft class is that they didn't take any of the, t- the pass-catching tight ends, for example. Right. And they've not, they've not taken any of the receivers who, you know, the Terry McLaurin types who can maybe just create that quick separation like Doug Baldwin did and get open on, you know, if you want to convert a third and seven, for example, you kind of do need that quickness that Doug Baldwin had. And they haven't drafted anybody like that. They've drafted a downfield 
228-pound monster, and they've drafted a slightly smaller guy who is 6'1 still and 200-odd pounds, who runs 4'4'2, runs downfield on go routes. And yet he can play a little bit in the slot, Jennings, and that is something that he did at West Virginia and was praised for that, his ability to play a little bit in the slot. But he's not agile. He's not like a, you know, not this amazing three cone. He's not like a six, Doug Bowen like ran a six five three cone, which is amazing. You know, and, and Gary Jennings is more like a six eight three cone. So there's, there's a difference between the two of them there. He's not going to be able to do the thing that Doug Bowen did. They haven't really got anybody now on third down who can create separation over the middle make a, a quick conversion. And they haven't really got the tight end who can do that either. I mean, Will Disley, where's he going to be? Nick Vanette's not that type of guy. Ed Dixon might be that type of guy, but he's into his 30s now. There isn't really anybody who can take that role, which is a little bit concerning to me. Well, and when I looked at the tight ends, because I there were times where I kept thinking, you know, well, maybe they could go tight end here. But again, that was... I, I looked at that as kind of the way the draft board fell too. You know, a lot of tight ends... Going in, maybe you know spots that I didn't necessarily think they would go. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and it, it's very similar to the defensive line. In the areas where the Seahawks are picking, it wasn't the the area to go for certain players, and there were different options that they wanted to target. So you know, I think if they take one in round two, it would have been a bit of a reach, and then by round three, you know, a lot of the guys had gone. Um, Drew Sample went a bit too early than it would have been he, for he the went round two. Round didn't he? two, yeah. Jay, Jay Sternberger, I think, would have been a really good option for that sort of quickness and ability to win at the, you know, in, in third downs and over the scene. But he went quite early as well. I mean, even someone like Jerome Wesco went very, very early. Was that we went after the pick after Gary Jennings? So, you know, there wasn't really that opportunity to get a tight end there. So I can sit here and say I'm a bit surprised they didn't do this and a bit surprised they didn't do that. And they could do with this type of player, but you've got to understand where the board falls. And I actually, I, I've had a look at every team's draft, Brandon. I've been through every single team's collection of picks so far and i'm not just saying this because i'm a seahawks fan you know i'm not, I'm not i don't do these types of things you know come off after a year and say the seahawks are the best draft class i, I don't do that i've never <laughs> said that not even after 2012 when they had obviously what was an outstanding draft class i think the seahawks have had the best draft over this weekend i think that the identity is clear the vision is clear i think they have found value other people don't want to call marquise blair and cody barton and people like that uh, the picks that they were taken they were Ben Burkirvan was listed by Bob McGinn as a third round prospect. Right. They got him in round five. That's the kind of value you get. And people say LJ Collier took him too early at 29. I thought he was a player that was definitely going to go between 30 and 40. And they got him at 29 instead. You know, it's they got the the players that they took were taken in the right places and they got value on certain players. And you could just see defense, speed, tenacity, leadership, a dedication to the identity special teams improvement. There are things that you always want. If they could have fit a tight end into there, great. If they could have fit another pass rusher into there, great. Let's see what they do over the next couple of weeks. I really like this draft class for the Seahawks. And I do think of all the teams, they've done the most to really help push their cause forward over this weekend. If you would have told a Seahawks fan going into the draft that by the end of day two, they would have DK Metcalf, LJ Collier and Marquise Blair and they got him with three picks in the first two rounds, nobody would have any complaints. They wouldn't say anybody, <laughs> exactly. anybody was taken too early. They said, okay, I don't care what the order is. Those are three great players in the first two rounds. If you just said to anybody, right, the, the Seahawks first pick is going to be DK Metcalf um, after trading down, let's say. Let's say you, a 29 to take DK Metcalf. What's the reaction of the Seahawks fan base? They probably go, great. <laughs> right. what, a, what a beast. 
you know, you've, you've taken this guy and, and we can all sort of see the athleticism there. And we all know that Pete Carroll has been looking for that big receiver for so long. What a pick that is. I'm happy with that. I'm delighted. If you then found out the second pick was LJ Collier and you're going, yeah, do you know what? They took LJ Collier at like 37 or something. That's, that's kind of where he was being projected. And look at what Brian Baldinger said about him in that Twitter video and blah, 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 and people feel satisfied about that. And then they come back and get Marquise Blair. And, oh yeah, we needed a safety and Marquise Blair, biggest hitter in the draft, ran a 4-4-8. You know, they, they obviously like the guy because he's the, the, this is the second earliest they've ever taken a defensive back after Earl Thomas. People are coming out and the, the impression of the whole draft class is completely different just from the order of the first three players they took. You mix it around and people start to complain. As I mentioned, you know, I think Collier was, was taken in the range he was supposed to go. I thought Blair went in the range that he was supposed to go. I think Barton went in the range he was supposed to go. Gary Jennings, we have projected in every single Seahawks seven-round mock draft that he was going to be a fourth-round pick for the Seahawks. They nailed that pick. That's exactly where he was supposed to go. Same for Phil Haynes. He was a round three, round four prospect. They get him fairly early in round four. Um, ben Burkirvin was touted by Bob McGinn as a third-round pick. They get him in round five. DK Metcalf was supposed to be a top-20 pick at one point. There were even people projecting him in the top 10 after the combine. Right. They get him at 64. You know, the value of this draft class is really good. They didn't fill every need. You would have loved to have seen them tap into that defensive line class a little bit more. You could easily make a case it's not possible. I think this is a terrific draft class, certainly one of the best of any of the teams over the weekend. And I'm very comfortable saying that. Well, and we got the best draft call out of out of day two. You know, the, the LJ Collier call was pretty good. But I don't think you can top John Schneider's call to DK Metcalf. Hello, DK. Yes, sir. Hey, it's John Schneider with with Seattle Seahawks. Hey, how you doing? How you doing, bud? Good. You doing all right? Yes, sir. Hey, man, get fired up. We're gonna make you a Seahawk right here, okay? (laughs) Yeah, all right, bud. All right, man. Congratulations. You got you got to help me out in the weight room though. I'm a little little slow in that area. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Look forward to this, brother. Okay. Here's Coach Carroll. DK. Hey, DK. This is Coach Pete Carroll. How you doing? I'm doing really good. <laughs> Okay, we'll both cry together then, all right? <laughs> Why y'all wait this long, man? I, I know, I know you had to wait a little bit, but that doesn't matter because you're coming to Seattle, man. You're going to play, in, you're gonna play with the Seahawks, and you're going to catch fo- footballs from Russell Wilson. So get your ass ready to go, big fella. We are fired up for it, and uh, the staff is excited. Listen to these guys. Here's your staff. Thank you. Thank you. TK, this is awesome, man. We're so excited about this. I can't even tell you. Does not get better than that. No, that is, that's probably my favorite one <laughs> over the years, just because the emotion of him. I just love the fact that he turned around and be going, why did it take so long to go, man? <laughs> you know, he just, why didn't you ring me yesterday? You know, I just right. love all that. And, and just the emotion, his voice. Pete Carroll saying, you know, get your ass ready to get over here and you're going to catch pass. It doesn't matter that you were picked in round two because you get to come and catch passes from Russell Wilson. You know, and that's the thing. If you're a receiver that's coming into the NFL, what is the number one thing that you want? You want to go to a team that's got a good, quarterback and and for DK Metcalf he'll have gone to sleep that night and he'll have been dreaming about catching passes with Russell Wilson in Seattle so a great pick great value seems like a great guy you know for all of the concerns around DK Metcalf the neck injury for example and the short shuttle and his concentration drops nobody and I mean nobody can deny that this guy loves playing football he's got a, a, a NFL bloodlines 
to the nines. I mean, he has got major NFL bloodlines. It's it's within, it's ingrained within his family football. And I just can't wait to see him play next year. Yeah, he's he's an exciting player for sure. And one of the things that I, I found interesting, well, with the Seahawks, both with DK Metcalf and with Gary Jennings of West Virginia, when it comes to wide receiver, they don't care much about the three cone drill, apparently, whereas it's it's the top thing for linebackers. Uh, not so much with both those guys uh, performing uh, toward the bottom of the of the draft class in uh, the three cone drill. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We've we've got a. Um... This is 10 drafts now. You know, we, we've got enough information on what the Seahawks look for at each position. And it does give us some guidance on on what to, to seek out. You know, if, if I ever thought that they were going to draft linebackers in this draft, we would have talked about Cody Barton and Ben Burkirvin because of their short shuttle times. Um, you know, I created um, an article a few years ago talking about the trench explosion formula. Right. And, and how they seemingly under Tom Cable had this this way of doing things, which was to find out who the most explosive offensive linemen were, bring them in, and then coach them up. And, you know, we did wonder a little bit if that would change under Mike Solari, you know, because we don't that was a Tom Cable ideal. It was it was him admitting what he prefers in a prospect. And that may be a thing that the Seahawks still believe in. It may not be. It may be a Tom Cable thing, but we don't really know. And then you look at this draft and um, you know, to talk about Phil Haynes briefly here. Phil Haynes was the second most explosive offensive lineman in this entire draft class. There was only one player, um, Iosa Apeta, who I don't think has been drafted. Tested a three six two in Tef. Haynes was second with three two two, and then you just look at the next six names on the list. Brandon, who he beat out in terms of explosive athleticism, and just just listen to these names: Chris Lindstrom, who was the fourteenth overall pick; Garrett Bradbury, who was the eighteenth overall pick; Andre Dillard, the twenty second overall pick; Eric McCoy went in second round; Caleb McGarry was the number thirty one overall pick; Elton Jenkins was a second round pick. You know. He was ahead of all of those guys in terms of physical explosive profile. So his potential is, is with those guys, if not better. And he's got the size and he's got the length that they love. You know, and, and you can sort of look at that and he's, a, he's an easy player to identify from a Seahawks profile point of view. And, and I, I, I think that's a great pick. You know, he's somebody who can come in, can compete with Mike party for left guard, can be an insurance uh, in the future and DJ Fluker. Fluker may only play 10 to 12 games next year. Because that's the way his his career's going. He, he gets injuries. You need someone to step in there. This guy can probably do it. Was a four year uh, starter at Wake Forest. Was the team captain. You know, uh, they they've picked up a load of guys who had C's on their jerseys when they were playing in college football. And I, I like that about it. You know, they're, they're getting guys in who are accountable. Um, Ugo Amadi was announced a, a team captain, a permanent team captain, like forever. Like he's, he, he had so much respect at Oregon. Oh, wow. You know, these, these are the guys that they're, they're taking, you know, they're bringing these guys in with a passion for the game, not guys who, maybe, maybe they're scarred a little bit from the Malik McDowell experience, I don't know, but they've reset what they want to get for in players. Fast, tough, strong, big, physical, passion for the game, special teams value, and, and that's been the theme of this entire draft class. And going for guys who are leaders. Yeah, that's uh, losing some of that leadership and with the expectation that you could lose more leadership with Doug Baldwin going out the door, Bobby Wagner getting toward the end of his career, or, you know, the uh, the guy who's a quiet leader like Earl Thomas heading out. You know, they, they need more leadership in the building, and it definitely seems like they're going in that direction now. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we talked about 
the the biggest needs for the Seahawks going into the draft. And apart, you know, we had the one criticism of the defensive line, but we talked about those first three picks. Who did we say? We said defensive line, safety, wide receiver. And that's exactly what they do with those first three picks. Uh, now, they d- instead of going with that slot corner type of player early on in those first three, they wait a little bit and they get Amadi, who should be that type of guy who can play inside the slot at corner. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that seems like the position that he's been earmarked for. Run defense is, is a quality for him. Um, he's, he's a sparky little player. Only ran a 4-5-1, but he's, he plays faster on tape. I mentioned the team captain. Had, I think, five tackles for a loss last year. Makes plays. I think he had. I'm going to drag up the statistic here because I think this is a really interesting stat and I want to get it right. So he had uh, three interceptions in 2018, two returned for touchdowns. Wow. Does that sound like anybody? Justin Coleman. It's like Justin <laughs> Coleman to me. They have found their Justin Coleman within this draft and it's Ugo Amadi in the, in the fourth round. And I, they've kind of hedged the bets a little bit. They, I think Pete Carroll was talking about him potentially being a safety, playing in a few different roles, playing on special teams because he is a punt returner. He scored on a punt return as well last season. Um, but I think he will get a chance to compete at nickel and they just don't want to say he's going to be a nickel because if it doesn't quite work out for him and they move him somewhere else, it seems like a failure. I think they just want to leave that open-ended for now. But I, I suspect that he will get a chance to play and compete for the nickel position, which is something that we talked about that they would they would try and do. And I didn't think they were going to take a, a pure safety like Marquise Blair. But then I think he has got that hybrid nature to him. I think you can line him up in many different positions if you want him to be a big nickel. If you want him to play strong, you can probably play a bit of free as well because he can play in space. Um, but here's the thing with Marquise Blair is he's a heat-seeking missile who likes to hammer people. So you know that, that's always going to appeal to the Seahawks. So you know the, there's, a, there's a method that every pick you can justify every pick you know there's the difference between us talking about this now brandon and maybe some of the initial reactions that you get on twitter is that people say why didn't they draft this guy why have they taken him they've taken him too early you know daniel jeremiah says that he had him in you know as as his 179th overall player and they've taken him (laughs) at 56 or something you know mel kuyper says this is a bad pick you know and and you you sort of there are bigger names available and you say why don't they take the bigger names because i've heard of them and i saw them playing in the sec on a a saturday but you you act when you actually break down the draft class and you take a step back and you bring some perspective to it there is a method behind every single one of these picks and as you know we're gonna keep saying it they haven't solved every need if if you could chuck another offense defensive lineman in there great especially in the early rounds and one of these great defensive linemen that was in this draft It'd be a complete draft class. Could they have got a tight end? Yeah, you probably would have liked to have seen them draft a tight end, but there wasn't one available in the range they were picking. They haven't drafted a cornerback, which is an outside cornerback, rather. You, right. you would have expected them to do that. They do it every year. You know, that fifth, sixth round, you expect to see an outside cornerback drafted to develop. They haven't done that. They haven't got any competition right now for their two starting outside corners. You would expect that that is something they're going to look at in undrafted free agency, but it's still a little bit of surprise that whether it was a Savion Smith or, or Derek Thomas or somebody like that, they didn't draft them to make sure that they got them. But that's maybe something they're going to look at in undrafted free agency. So it's not, you know, if they'd have had 15 picks, they would have sold every need. They didn't have 15 picks. They've tried to solve as many needs as they have. And I think it's a very good class. And I'll say it again. I think it's, if it's not the best draft class over the weekend in terms of impact, in terms of identity, in terms of, in terms of consistency, it's certainly within the top five. Well, I think Seahawks fans can be happy too that instead of drafting a running back in round one, they waited until round six this year. Yeah, and um, this guy is a little bit smaller, Travis Homer, a little bit smaller than the typical player that they have drafted at the position. Right. They, they like 5'10", 220 pounds. 
This guy's 5'10", he's like 201 pounds. He plays bigger than his size would suggest. One of the big things for him is pass protection. He's described as um, a pro-level pass protector already. Now, that is huge. That right. is the absolutely the number one thing that teams look for in running backs. Well, they've struggled to find that guy, football. too, in, in past years. And I guess Mike Davis is probably the guy who was best suited for that role. And now he's in Chicago. Exactly. And look, they need somebody. If CJ Procise is never going to work out, if he's never going to take his opportunity to actually make this work at the Seahawks, then they need somebody who can come in and can pass protect on third down, make some runs, make some catches. And that's what Travis Homer is going to get an opportunity to do. And finally, Demarcus Christmas, the last guy off the board, Florida State defensive tackle. You mentioned taking a flyer on him. I guess that's kind of what uh, the guys are when you're in that comp pick range in round six anyway. But uh, what, anything that you know about him? He was uh, being touted as a third round prospect. Um, I, I want to say maybe not before the 2018 season, but certainly before 2017. He was one of those players that at Florida State, you know, they've had a long history of, of interior defensive linemen going very early in the draft and they're actually having an impact as well at the next level. And he was sort of seen as the next big thing. He was going to be the next one who was coming through on the pipeline. And it never quite worked for him. He was too inconsistent. His run defense isn't particularly strong. He would flash as a pass rusher, but then he would also get washed out of place too easily. And he never really took the next step at Florida State. Now, part of that might be the fact that they've completely collapsed. You know, they've gone through a coaching uh, change recently. They're, as a team, they've gone from a national championship contender to just an absolute basket case. And maybe that has, has led to him not developing quite as he would have hoped or expected. Um, but in this range, you kind of think, well, why not take a flyer on him? You know, take a chance on him. He's got some potential there. He's pretty much the antithesis of what they've taken at defensive line in the past. He doesn't have 33-inch arms. It's 32 and three quarters, so he's nearly there. And he ran like a 507 short shuttle. So that's not the type of player that they would draft earlier than the sixth round. But obviously, they see something in him. They see him still on the board. They needed to add a defensive lineman. They're going to add some competition there at defensive tackle. Whether he makes the team or not is going to be a big question mark. But he comes in to compete, and he'll get a camp. One of the most surprising facts to me coming out of this draft was finding out that Gary Jennings of West Virginia was once coached by Russell Wilson, uh, his YMCA basketball team. And I, I didn't think, I, I guess this is a sign that Russell Wilson's getting old because he coached it's some a, young guy. <laughs> it's a sign that we're all getting old, Brandon. Uh, I, I read that as well. And, and, you know, you have to do a double take, don't you? Because you kind of still see Russell as um, that fresh faced quarterback. And, you know, you, you have to kind of remember that it was eight, it was seven years ago that he was drafted. And, um, you know, time flies and it moves on very quickly. And Gary Jennings is a lot younger than Russell Wilson. But, um, you know, I like the Jennings pick. You know, he was the fastest player at the senior bowl. They test the, the speed at the senior bowl. Yeah, Schneider referenced the uh, Jennings senior bowl on his, on his call to him even. He was brilliant at the senior bowl. In the week, in the, in the drills and the practices. And then um, in the game itself, he was making all sorts of plays. Had a fantastic game. Um, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, when Tyler Lockett actually took over the game at the Senior Bowl and um, Gary Jennings did something very similar in Mobile this year. Mm -hmm. And the Seahawks do value um, how you perform at the Senior Bowl. They've taken a lot of players who were at the Senior Bowl. Well, including Russell performed Wilson, so well at the Senior Bowl. So, um, so I, I'm not surprised at all that they, they saw some value in him. He was the most predictable pick of this entire draft for me, um, that he was going to be taken by the Seahawks in round 40. You know, we, every seven rounder that we did, we stuck him in there. Um <laughs> I had him in the seven rounder um, the day before the draft, and um, he was he was always going to be a seal because he does everything that he's a four four runner. You know we've said they consistently look for four four or faster, which they've taken with the two guys they've got here. 
He's got size. He competes for the football. He gets downfield. Great on go routes. Made loads of big plays downfield. Um, 75% catch rate, which is exactly what they love. Um, so he's a consistent catcher. And he and Will Greer were very, uh, you know, they were prolific uh, in, in college. So a typical Seahawks pick and, and just another great addition to this team. Well, the draft hasn't quite yet concluded, Rob, but are there any guys kind of on your radar as potential undrafted uh, you know, priority uh, UDFAs that they go after once the draft finishes? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting names that are still there. Um, you know, we obviously we're, we're speaking here and there's still a handful of picks to go. So some of these guys may leave. I'm a bit surprised that Emmanuel Hall hasn't left the board right. and Rodney Anderson you know, Rodney Anderson had got the injury history, but I thought that someone would take a flyer on him. And if he's available as an undrafted free agent, I don't think there'd be any harm in bringing him in. Uh, Diviner Zigbo is still out there. I think he's a running back. It could be somebody that they may want to have a look at. Daniel Wise at Kansas was a team captain. Interior pass rusher, really quick, great short shuttle, good length, 33-inch arms. Albert Huggins is a sort of a nose tackle type, still out there. Jamal Peters, Savion Smith, Derek Thomas are cornerbacks that I think they may consider as outside corners if they're there in undrafted free agency. Um, Caden Ellis is a potential linebacker pass rusher type. Steven Denmark's another player that has really sort of emerged recently because of his testing um, and could be an outside cornerback that they really show interest in. Alec Ingold is a fullback still out there, someone that they could show interest in. And I think that one guy I would really keep an eye on is Johnny Dixon at Ohio State. If he doesn't get drafted, he is somebody who's really quick, really sudden, and if they're looking for an undrafted guy to replace the undrafted guy who's had so much success for them for the last few years, then Johnny Dixon from Ohio State could be a guy they bring in to try and develop. To, obviously, very difficult to emulate the success of Doug Baldwin, but to try and play a similar role. Oh, and it looks like the Seahawks got a pick in the seventh round that's just coming in well, right now. There's live radio for your podcasting as we speak. Well, Rob, if there's something I've learned from the TV broadcast, it's that when the Seahawks are about to make a pick, we should go to break. So let's do that and come back. And then maybe we can take a guess as to who might be coming next and then see who the Seahawks ultimately pick. As we mentioned, the Seahawks have moved into the seventh round, pick number 236. So uh, potentially trading a pick from one of those 2020 picks that you talked about. Now just to move up into round seven to to get someone. Well, it's good that, that, that we managed to catch this right at the end there um, so that this <laughs> podcast can be a complete review of the draft class. But um, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what they, what they do with this pick. Um, obviously, there is somebody that they're not confident is going to last into undrafted free agency that they can go and compete and get. It may even be that they're going to add a position that they're already fairly solid at and they, they feel that they're not going to be able to convince the guy to come in because he won't feel like he's got much of a chance of getting in. It's only a seventh round pick, so it makes you wonder, you know, it's, it's probably going to be something like a sixth round pick, you would imagine, um, in 2020, if that's the kind of compensation to get back into the seventh round here. It's not going to be anything more than that, you would imagine, for a seventh round pick. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody on the roster that they could have shifted for a seventh round pick, but that seems fairly unlikely. Yeah, the compensation hasn't hasn't come across on Twitter yet, but you know there are still some of those defensive linemen out there. You know, Jalen Jelks was uh, the Oregon defensive lineman who met with the the team uh, in a couple different moments, and the fact that he's still on the board. But you know, a lot of people expected him to kind of go toward the middle rounds four, round five. This could be their their move where they find another defensive lineman who slipped a little bit down farther than they expected. 
and uh, decide to go ahead and pick it here. Yeah, I'm interested to see what this could be. I mean, we said that they hadn't drafted a, a cornerback. I just wonder whether or not they want to make sure that they do come away with that, that cornerback. <laughs> yeah, who, who was the corner that you had projected to them in the seventh round in your mock draft? It was Derek Thomas. Ah, yes. And is he still on the board? This Maybe this he is, is the he one. He's still on the board. So there's Derek Thomas there. I mean, and there's Stephen Denmark, who is an incredible athlete. He's very raw, but someone that could coach up. The Savion Smith from Alabama, Jamal Peters, who Tony Pauline said they were interested in, but he ran very slow. Time may have put them off. The Seahawks give up the 2020 sixth round pick of theirs to the Jaguars to, to get the 236 ah. pick overall. That was a good guess on the compensation. So um, down to 11 picks now for 2020. I'm, you know, 12 was a good round number for the Seahawks. <laughs> um, it's a shame that they're going to lose that, but um, may even drop even more if they uh, go out and get a veteran pass rusher or something in the next few days. So, well, it was interesting that there's going to be one more pick here and and who it could potentially be. And, and the NFL Network just has this history of saying that the pick is in about five to ten minutes before it actually happens. And, and then we're just stuck here waiting and watching as it says the pick is in, but not actually giving it the pick. Uh, help, uh, oh, here it is. Wide receiver John Ursua of Hawaii. That's an interesting one. Another receiver. Yeah. And, and also, they obviously felt that they had to come away with that guy. As I mentioned... 5'9", 178. Oh, and they drafted a receiver that's run a 4'5", and not a sub 4'4", four four, or yeah, that's actually run a 4'5'6", and not a, a sub 4'5". Yeah, I mean, they have drafted two receivers. Oh, that's true. The Cal, yeah, the, the, the Cal guy. Yeah. The, the Cal guy and uh, Chris Harper right. is another one. So, um, it's the point that I was making before was that if they have drafted or if they've got depth at a certain position, they may feel like we're not going to be able to convince this guy to come and sign with us as an undrafted free agent. And if there's a player that they really, really want to make sure that they land and not have to try and barter with other teams to get, this is a way of making sure that you get them, you take them in the seventh round. What the Seahawks have done over the years under Carolyn Schneider is they have gone out and with their seventh round picks, they've maybe taken players that they rate even marginally less than the guys that they want to go and get an undrafted free agent, but to make sure that they get certain players so they don't finish off without them. And maybe they thought that we've drafted two receivers. It's going to be hard to convince John O'Sewer to go in and, and, and sign with us. Um, so we'll move into the seventh round and get him. I don't know an awful lot about him. I can't share too much information about him, uh, but it's three receivers from this draft, which is an interesting thing. And it speaks to the, the Baldwin situation as well. Yeah, I, I hate to bring that up, but uh, it does it does kind of lend some evidence toward that fact going forward. So it's going to be a question we watch with the Seahawks, uh, what they do, what happens at wide receiver, what happens along the defensive line in free agency, and especially with uh, coming up here in just a couple weeks or so, those free agency selections, guys who were uh, free agents back in March, who have stuck around and hung around this long. They no longer affect the compensatory pick system come May. So that'll be the time where they might be more willing to spend some money at a particular position and not have to give up those projected third, fourth, sixth, and seventh round picks that they're going to get compensatory picks uh, based off how they've structured their moves in the offseason. 
the other interesting thing is they will now made 11 picks in this draft and they've got 11 picks for next year. So they're building through the draft. Um, that has been, that's been something I think they want to start doing now. I don't think we're going to see, I mean, I've, I've been talking about the Genevian clowny possibility, but I don't think we're going to see any sort of big outside moves or a minimal amount of big outside moves moving forward here. But I, I just find it, um, I find it an interesting thing that, you know, they've, they've brought in another receiver. Apparently he led the FBS last year with 16 receiving touchdowns. They've got a lot of competition at receiver now. And that might be the way to handle this situation is if you're losing Baldwin, bring in a load of competition. They're, they're going to have a lot of money to spend. You know, Frank Clark's $17 million is going to come off the books because of the, the trade. And if Doug Baldwin retires, that's going to be another hefty salary that comes off and, and you're making a killer saving there. So um, they're going to have some major money left over from this year, which they can either roll forward or they can spend. And that's why I kind of bring up the, the clowny thing because They've got the money if they wanted to go out and sign him and, and pay him a huge contract now. I mean, if they want to do that, they can. They've also got the money to go out and sign four or five defensive linemen veterans if they want to and maybe save some and roll that forward. Or if they want to you know, absolutely splash out on Bobby Wagner and Jaron Reed, they can go and do that. So they've got a lot of options now, Brandon. All right, Rob. Well, how about some final thoughts on the draft overall? I know you said that you, you graded as as one of the top in the league. I'm kind of curious who you who you also look at among the other teams. You know, top three. If the Seahawks are are among the top three for you, who are a couple of those other teams? I think New England uh, are one of the teams that I would highlight as having had a good draft. I think that they managed to find a lot of value and a lot of fits for their. Um, for, the, for their style and, and the way that they want to play. I think that it, it's hard to sort of knock Indianapolis. They, another team that really want to build through the draft, although I'm not a huge fan of Ben Benogu and, and one or two other of their picks. You can see what they're trying to do. They're bringing in consistently the same type of players. So I think that New England, Indianapolis and Seattle are the three teams that I would highlight. I think that the Arizona Cardinals have had a decent draft as well. There are one or two others out there. Um, it, was surprising, it was surprising to see the Chicago Bears with they've only they'd only made two picks, I think in like rounds four and round six or something ridiculous like that because of the all the trades and the Khalil Mack trade as well. They've barely like not had a draft in Chicago this year, which uh, it'll be interesting to see how that affects them. It's, it's not often that you see a team so so low on picks and uh, and and whether that will have an, an adverse impact on them next year. I'm I'm interested why you picked the Cardinals out as one of the top ones. Like Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray, it makes sense with them having that first pick overall. But three wide receivers not taking an offensive lineman until round six. You know, the only defensive lineman that first pick around three, Zach Allen out of Boston College. And other than that, you know, they, they get the receivers, Andy Isabella, Hakeem Butler, uh, Keyshawn Johnson. Uh, and that's uh, yeah, I always like that name, Keyshawn Johnson. It's spelled a little bit different than the than the former great Keyshawn Johnson. But uh. the, re- the reason I would highlight that is, first of all, I think Kyle Moore is the best player in the draft. So th- I think that the fact that they had the, the there are some teams would not have had the, the balls to um, to sort of write off Josh Rosen and go, we're going to make this pick here. A lot of teams would have just took Quinn and Williams, Nick Bosa or somebody like that, and then just said, oh, we've, we've got our guy. And yeah. would have rolled into next next season, and I don't think Josh Rosen has got it. I, I just don't think he's got it. If you, if you, if that makes any sense, um, he's, he's a talented guy, but has he got that grit? You know, is he ever going to? Can you imagine Josh Rosen in the playoffs? I'm not sure I can imagine that. And and I was a huge fan of Kyler Murray, so I think I actually think kudos to them for making such a huge call. Byron Murphy for me is the best cornerback in the draft. And yeah. They got him at, at, at pick number thirty three. I'm a huge Byron Murphy fan, so. I think that was a good pick. I think to get Zach Allen at the top of round three, 
for their defense is a good pick, is a really good pick. And even though he didn't have a good senior bowl, he had a good short shuttle and he, he took over games in, in 2018 for Boston College. So I think there's, there's definitely some value there. I am not a big fan of Andy Isabella or Hakeem Butler. Hakeem Butler has way too many drops. He's been massively overrated by some people. He thoroughly deserved to go in the range where he did, which is the first pick in round four. He has some athletic potential, and I think playing with Kyler Murray could help him. But he has to, if he sorts out the drops, he can have a career. If he doesn't sort out the drops, then he won't. Andy Isabella needs to stop dancing in his release and just get downfield. The thing <laughs> right. both of them have got is they've both got loads of speed, which is something yeah. that, you know, with Kyler Murray is going to be a huge boost. Deontay Thompson, I never liked. You know, there was a lot of people saying it was going to be a top 10 pick at one point. Um, and I never bought into that. I thought mid rounds at best, he's ended up going in the fifth round. But when you get to the fifth round, you know, I, I kind of feel like, yeah, he's worth a flyer at that point. Oh, sure. Keyshawn, yeah. Keyshawn Johnson, I think is a, is, a, is a good quality receiver who's a little bit underrated. And he's the kind of player that it would not surprise me from this draft class if Keyshawn Johnson and not Andy Isabella and Hakeem Butler was the one that really made that connection with uh, Kyler Murray. And I'm a big fan of the guy they got in the sixth round, Lamont. Uh, uh, I think I can't remember how he spells like Guyard or something like that. I think it's Guyard. It's pronounced. Um, who is the center from Georgia? And I'm a little bit surprised that the Seahawks didn't look at him with the way that they've drafted. Team captain, extremely respected, extremely tough and physical. And I think to get him in the sixth round, he is a guy who could start at the next level. I think that's one of the the, the biggest value picks in the entire draft. So although I didn't really like Ian Butler and, and Andy Isabella, I can kind of respect the, the the idea with the picks. And I think they actually picked up some really talented players and some good value positions. All right. So the other team in the NFC West that that you like their draft is the Cardinals. Maybe they move up and and actually compete, win a few games this year. I I just I struggle to with the problems that they've had. And they did address some of their their issues in free agency on the offensive line. I just I tend to think that there's still too many issues there and that Kyler Murray's going to have a rough first year behind that Cardinals offensive line. Can I just say a final point on the Cardinals? I think they'll struggle because of the scheme. I think that this is going to be more Chip Kelly um, in the NFL than uh, Sean McVay. I think they tried to copy Sean McVay without realizing that Sean McVay was coaching in the NFL for years uh, right. before taking over the, the LA Rams um, as a head coach. And he's also a phenomenal, you know, he's, he's quite clearly a, a phenomena, isn't he, Sean McVay? I mean, he's, he's like, th- he's younger than me. He's like 31 or something like that. He <laughs> and yet connects to all these young players. He's obviously an offensive mastermind. He's one of a kind. All these teams trying to copy him. You, you can't call He's got it. He's, he's got the X factor. There's, there's something about him which is incredible. And they've brought in Cliff Kingsbury. Now, maybe he's got it as well. well. We'll find out next year. But he's trying to bring a college scheme into the NFL. And it didn't work with Chip Kelly. And I would fear that it won't work with Cliff Kingsbury. And I think that might actually be their biggest downfall. Not the players like Kyler Murray that they've got. And, and I, I do, I, I'm intrigued to see how it's going to work out. But I'm not confident that it's going to translate to the NFL. Yeah, Sean McVay, 33 years old. Cliff Kingsbury, yeah, when he's not much of a spark plug now. That, that guy, whenever I hear him in press conferences, he's he sounds more like Bill Belichick than uh, Sean McVay. Yeah, I mean, Sean McVay is very engaging. Listen, I mean, he's, he's the kind of bloke that you kind of want to dislike, but you just can't help liking him. Um, I just hope that uh, they have a Super Bowl hangover next year. Oh, for sure. All right, Rob. Well, I think that does it for the draft show. I want to thank you for all the time that you've put into this throughout the off season, coming on and and doing the podcast here. Uh, what was it? Just about twice a week for the last month. So been a fun time and I'm sure we'll be talking more again down the road. Maybe, maybe once we hear about some of these undrafted free agents too. 
Yeah, Brandon, thank you for having me on. You've been a great host um, and it's been a pleasure to speak to you about the draft over these last few weeks. Very happy to come on and talk about any of the undrafted players in the future as well. And um, I think Seahawks fans can look forward to an exciting few weeks as we see what they're going to do in the pass rush and hopefully very exciting 2019 season as well. And that does it. Be sure to follow Rob at Rob Staten on Twitter, SeahawksDraftBlog.com. Follow all the draft action at FieldGoals.com. Going to be plenty of articles there breaking down all of the picks from the Seahawks. Have some video breakdowns coming up as well from all of the writers at Field Goals. Going to be looking forward to the 2019 NFL season. Go Hawks!